On November 20th, 1839, John Williams and James Harris from the London Missionary Society landed in the New Hebrides, a string of islands in the South Pacific, just east of Australia. Both of these missionaries were killed and eaten by cannibals on the island of Aramanga only minutes after going offshore, still within sight of the ship that had dropped them off. This is why, 19 years later, when the Scotsman, John Patton, made known his plans to sail for these islands, to be a missionary there, a certain Mr. Dixon said to him in an outburst, The cannibals! The cannibals! You will be eaten by Cannibals. This, of course, was not an unreasonable response from Mr. Dixon. It was only, it was not even 20 years ago from this moment that Williams and Harris were killed. Uh, the memory of their death would have been fresh in their minds. However, to this outburst, Patton responded. Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Time doesn't permit us to consider the life of John Patton any further, but I do want to mention the fruit of his labor, some of the fruit of his labor at least. Vanuatu, the island of the, uh, in the New Hebrides where Patton ministered most of his life, was completely unreached in 1839 when Harrison Williams got there, obviously, and it was... Still so, in 1858, when Patton sailed for the islands. Today, however, 109 years after the death of John Patton, about 94% of the population of that island, Vanuatu, identifies itself as Christian, and perhaps even as much as 45% of the population actually being evangelical. Consider also a man named Adoniram Judson, a missionary to Burma, or present-day Myanmar. A biographer wrote about him, When Adoniram Judson entered Burma in July 1813, it was a hostile and utterly unreached place. William Carey, the father of the modern missionary movement, had even told Judson in India a few months earlier not to go there. It probably would have been considered a closed country today with anarchic despotism, fierce war with Siam, enemy raids, constant rebellion, and no religious toleration. All the previous missionaries had died or left. While Buddhism is still a religious powerhouse of that nation today, there is an estimated 3,700 congregations in the Burmese Baptist Convention and about 5% of the total population of Myanmar are evangelicals. That's 2.5 million people. And so it's true that no doubt 
one plants, another waters, and God gives the increase. And yet, we must acknowledge the instrumentality of men like Patton, Judson, Harris, and Williams. We must acknowledge their instrumentality in the increase that God has given in these lands. And there is a common thread that runs through their lives. And I think that thread will be evident soon enough. But for now, hold these men and their missions in your mind, and I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 15. We will be considering verses 20 and 21. And from there, I'll unpack our message this morning. Facing a task unfinished. And our key words for our worshipers in training are ambition, need, and promise. The book of Romans is Paul's magnum opus, if you will. Of all the books in the Bible, certainly of Paul's letters, it offers the most thorough explanation of the gospel of God from A to Z. Paul's basic argument in the book has three movements. First, in chapters 1 through 3, Paul describes the plight of mankind in our rebellion against God underneath the law of God, awaiting the judgment of God. Secondly, though, in chapters 4 through 11, Paul discusses the gospel of God and its power for salvation in the lives of those who believe it. And he considers its implications in our lives. And then lastly, in chapters 12 through 16, he concludes by returning to the law of God in the believer's life as a rule of life and faith. And it's in this last section, chapters 12 through 15, toward the end, uh, really in the middle of chapter 15, Paul begins landing the plane and making some concluding comments. And it's in this concluding section that we find our passage, verses 20 and 21, and I'm going to read verses 14 through 24 to give us a proper context of our verses. Paul writes, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ." And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have 
never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So here in this section of Scripture, Paul is explaining to the saints at Rome why he hasn't come to visit them yet, but that he is planning on doing so in short time on his way to Spain. He says in verse Uh, 19, that he has fulfilled his ministry of the gospel from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, which is present-day Albania. And it's time now for him to move on to another area because it is his ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, but to those to whom the name has never been taught. And so I want to consider verses 20, 21, and look at Paul's ambition to the unreached. And I want to ask a simple question. What does Paul's ambition have to do with us? And as we answer that question, we will uh, draw out three things from the text. First, Paul's great ambition. Second, the world's great need. Third, the Scripture's great promise. First, Paul's great ambition. What is ambition? If someone asked you to define it, how would you explain what ambition is? Well, simply enough, the, what Paul says here, he says he earnestly aspires to something. Ambition is an ardent desire for advancement. If you have ambition... You are earnestly and eagerly seeking something. It is a singular focus in your thoughts and your will. Whatever other desires and wants and goals you may have fall by the wayside in the pursuit of your ambition. The ambitious person has committed himself wholeheartedly to his task. He has devoted himself to the pursuit of a particular goal and does not truly rest until that goal is reached. While ambitions are often very good things, sometimes they are misguided. Like the time I was in the third grade and made it my ambition to train to be a professional baseball player. I quit playing every other sport for uh, many years, and I read books about baseball players, I watched baseball on TV, and it was uh, somewhat, apparently, an all-consuming passion, but I don't think it was quite enough. Because while I had planned on playing in middle school and high school and college and greater glory on from there in the major leagues, my ambition was not deterred when I was cut during tryouts in the 7th grade and the 8th grade. And it wasn't until 
a batting practice before the official tryouts in the ninth grade where I realized I was not cut out for a life in ball. And so, thank God, my ambition for baseball died there on that cool winter's day when I was 14 or 15 years old. Well, like my 8 to 14-year-old self, Paul, too, says he has an ambition. However, his ambition is concerned with the greatest cause in the world. The ambition is to preach the Gospel. Paul made it his singular focus in this life to preach the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And thankfully, he never let that ambition die. An example of Paul's Another example of Paul describing this ambition can be found in Acts chapter 20, verses 22 through 24. He says, Now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul had a singular desire in his life, and that was to see the name of Christ made great. It was to preach Christ and Him crucified. It was to count all things as loss compared to the worth of knowing Christ Jesus his Lord. For Paul, to live was Christ, and to die, gain. And I would argue that this is the same ambition that we saw in the lives of John Patton and Adoniram Judson, or the missionary to inland China, Hudson Taylor, This is what we saw in William Carey, missionary to India, or David Brainerd, missionary to the American Indians in the 1700s. This is the ambition that we see in countless others. They cared not what happened to their bodies. If they could but spend and be spent for the sake of the Gospel of Christ, they were content It was the utmost importance to them that men and women be reconciled to God through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners. And so that is Paul's ambition to preach Christ. But that is only half of the ambition. Because he doesn't simply say his ambition is to preach Christ, but to preach Christ where Christ has not been named. And this will actually lead us into our second point for consideration this morning. The world's great need. Paul has a desire to take the banner of Christ and place it where it has not been placed before. He wants to go to those who have never even heard the name of Jesus and tell them the good news. 
Because you see, the unreached people of the world desperately need to hear this good news. Because they are perishing without it. In Romans chapter 1, Paul makes this plain. He says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They are without excuse. The people of the world, the people in the darkest, most remote places in this world, are without excuse because they have the knowledge of God given to them by God in creation. When they look at the skies, when they look at the seas, when they look at themselves, they know God. But this knowledge is not enough to save them. It is merely enough to condemn them. It tells them that they are sinners and they suppress this truth about God in unrighteousness and they refuse to honor God as God and give thanks to Him. When missionaries go to unreached peoples, what do they find? They find worshipers. But are they worshiping the true God? No. They find men and women and children worshiping, yes, but they are worshiping idols. They are worshiping false gods. They are worshiping spirits and demons. They are not worshiping God. They love their sin and they have rejected their Creator. This is the great need, my friends, of the world. There are billions of people alive right now bound for hell. Because although they know God, they refuse to honor Him as God and they will not give Him proper thanks. They do not even know the name of Jesus Christ. And yet, they are lost without God in the world. They are perishing without Him. And this is why Paul has made it, he had made it his ambition to go to them. It was to take the greatest news in the world that God has reconciled sinners to Himself through the life, death, and resurrection of His Son. It is to take that news to people who have no access to it and who are being lost to hell forever without it. So who are these unreached peoples? Where are they? Because this was written a long time ago. A lot has changed in the world because 
If you think about it, if Paul had been aware of America, we would be unreached. Are there unreached peoples left? Is there even a point to this sermon this morning? Well, here are the proportions of the need that remain today. According to joshuaproject.net, there are an estimated 16,500 different people groups in the world. Now, people group doesn't mean a nation in the kind of geopolitical, arbitrary lines drawn that we tend to think of nations as. A people group, uh, as defined by this same group, uh, Joshua Project, is the largest group within which the gospel can spread as a church planning movement without encountering barriers of understanding or acceptance. And so barriers being like language, culture, geographical divides. And so what are the numbers of unreached? Of the 16 and a half thousand people groups on earth today, there are 6,685 that remain unreached. What do we mean by unreached? There are 7,000, almost, almost 7,000 people groups, or 3.11 billion people, which constitute 42% of the world's population who lack enough followers of Christ and resources to evangelize their own people. What we're saying is this, besides all of the people in the world who have access to the gospel and reject it, there are still over 3 billion people on this planet who have never even heard the gospel to reject it. The need, indeed, therefore, is very great. At this point, perhaps, or at least I can imagine a question arising in someone's mind. What about the lost people across the street? Amen. I want to affirm that there's a great need here, even in America, for people to hear the gospel. Not just on church on, in church on Sunday, but on the street on Monday and Thursday and every other day that ends with a Y. The point in discussing those places where there is no gospel witness, which you could even argue you could find in places in America, few as they may be, the point is not to say that we should not evangelize our neighbor across the street, but it is to say that God has also called His church to be concerned about bringing the good news to our neighbors across the world. We want to be a both and church. Wholeheartedly. Both and. Both next door and across the world. So please tell your neighbor the man in the grocery store or the lady at the gym, how much God has done for you. But let's not forget that there are also billions of people who have no access to the gospel at all. And there currently is no way for them to get it.
But even still, maybe you're asking, what does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with us now? Paul says it was his ambition to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named. He was an apostle. Maybe it was part of his unique apostolic calling to preach Christ where he had not yet been named. What does this have to do with anyone in the 21st century? What does this have to do with anyone at Redeemer Baptist Church? What does this have to do with me? That leads us to our third point. We have considered Paul's need, uh, his ambition, the world's need, and now the Scripture's promise. No doubt, Paul had a unique calling as an apostle to the Gentiles. But I don't think that it is his calling as an apostle, capital A, that he intends here as to be the sole foundation for his labors here to the unreached. There's some debate to this point, but for the following reasons, I'm persuaded that Paul is not here grounding his mission to the unreached in his role and call as an apostle, at least not in that alone. First, notice what he does not say here in this text, in this passage. He does not say that God has given him a calling as an apostle to the unreached. He says it in other places, but he does not say, I want to go where no one has preached Christ before because I am an apostle. Secondly, what he does say is profound. He quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes from Isaiah 52.12, which is one of the beginning of one of the better known suffering servant songs of the Messiah. That the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, under the Messiah's reign, He would sprinkle many nations, kings would shut their mouths because of Him, and those to whom it has never been told, they will see, and those who have not heard will understand. Paul says it is his ambition to take the Gospel to those who haven't heard because of what he reads in Isaiah 52. This promise in Isaiah, this prophecy, is simply astounding. Consider for a moment Paul's ambition to preach the Gospel in lands where there was no Gospel witness is founded upon the promise of God in Isaiah that the Messiah would sprinkle many nations and that those who haven't heard or been told, we'll see. Those who sit in darkness will have their eyes opened, and so Paul wants to go. It is the promise of God to bring about the obedience of the peoples that serves as the foundation of the missionary endeavor to the unreached. Paul can go, and we can go. We can go on the authority of God's Word. 
we can go to those who haven't heard and we can have an absolute confidence that God's Word will not return void. Sarah Judson, wife to Adoniram, whom I mentioned earlier, she exemplifies this confidence well when she, in a poem that she wrote toward the end of her life. She wrote it for Adoniram, and I want to quote a part of it here. She writes, We part on this green islet, love, thou for the eastern main, I for the setting sun, love. O when to meet again. Then gird thy armor on, love, nor faint thou by the way, till Buddha fall and Burma's sons shall own Messiah's way. Brothers and sisters, look out into the world and you can see three billion unreached people in the world and you can have the same confidence that Ms. Judson has had. You can trust that there isn't a place on this planet that is outside the reach of God's arm. Even the most difficult and dangerous places in the world are not out of His reach. And that is a really good thing because some would tell you that those are the only places left. As far as unreached peoples go, many would argue that most, if not all of them, are in dangerous places. David Platt, president of the Southern Baptist International Mission Board, recently said as much in an address to students in a chapel service at Southern Seminary. He said, quote, those who haven't been reached with the gospel are unreached for a reason. They are hard to reach. They are difficult to reach. They are dangerous to reach. All of the easy people groups are taken. Only the hard ones remain. End quote. And yet, God's promise stands. His word will not fail, and the gates of hell will not prevail against His church. The gospel continues on to the ends of the earth. I mentioned in Sunday school a couple of weeks ago that when it comes to the missionary movement, the missionary endeavor, that we all find ourselves in one of three categories. We are either sending going, or we are being disobedient. And so, as we begin to close here, I want to say a word to all three groups, assuming that it's, it's likely in a, a room this size that there are all three of us here. First, if you're here this morning, you call yourself a Christian, but are not personally involved in this great work, I want to press you and I want to ask you why. Ask yourself why. Not everyone is called to go, but as the church, we are all called to be involved in this work. We cannot claim, you cannot claim to be a loving person if you have no desire to be involved in the spread of the gospel in the world. There are billions of people on the planet right now under the wrath of God who do not know any way out from underneath it 
and have no access to that information, to that life-changing news, do you care for their souls? I urge you, if God has bestowed His love upon you, do not withhold your love from the lost in this world. If you are a Christian here this morning and you find in yourself no desire for world missions, repent of your apathy and join the fight. Perhaps though, Maybe you're in this category of apathy towards the lost, but you realize that you yourself are lost. You don't simply live in unbelief as a Christian. You live in unbelief, period. You are not with the Lord. And if so, if it's anyone here, I invite you, come to Christ. Repent of your sins. Put your faith in Him. Flee from the wrath to come. There is ample room for you at the cross. Secondly, most of us here, and this is probably the biggest group in the room, uh, the most number of people anyways, most of us are not called to pack up a few necessities and then sell the rest and move permanently to a foreign land where there is no evangelical witness and we're going there to live out our lives as foreign missionaries like the Apostle Paul did or John Patton or Adoniram Judson, Hudson Taylor and the rest. Most of you in here are called to hold the rope for those who are going and that is exactly what you are doing. And I want to encourage you and thank you. Keep holding. Keep praying. Keep giving. Keep sending. Give and give and give. If you want to know what other things, what, how, how do I... If I'm not a goer, if I'm not disobedient, but I'm a sender, how do I be a better one? Stay alert to the gospel witness in the world. Visit a website I mentioned earlier, joshuaproject.net. Read through it. Pray through it. Buy a copy of that book. Uh, We used to have one back there. I don't know if we do anymore, but Operation World. Buy that book or go to the website and pray through it. It's got a calendar. You can pray for a different nation in the world every day of the year. Come to our monthly mission meetings that we have after our fellowship meal on the last Sundays of most months. Read the updates that you get from RB Network and pray, pray, pray. You have an immense job in front of you as holders, as senders, But the Lord who calls you to it is able to uphold you in the task. Third, while most in this room will never set foot in a foreign country for the purposes of gospel advancement among unreached people groups, I have a great hope and prayer that God might be pleased to raise someone or someone's someone's up from our midst to do just that. 
And so this is a long-term goal, but if whatever boat you think you're in, just, we're almost done. Uh, Just listen for the next few moments. Ask yourself this. Are you sure that God wants you to continue living out your days in faithful service to Him here in this relatively gospel-saturated, church-saturated land? I'm no fool to the decline of our current culture and society. But compared to many places in the world, there's still a great church witness here. There is one that actually exists. And so ask yourself, is it possible that God right now is stirring within you a desire and is placing upon you a call to lay down everything and go? Is just maybe, is God calling to you through His Word to look out at the 6,685 unreached people groups and with His help to say, I'm going. I'm going to the Ache people in China or the Adaviar people in India, or the Alu people in Laos, or the Anwa people in Indonesia, or the Lodha people in Nepal, or the Loman people in Sudan, the Madari people in Pakistan, the Mahamid people in Chad, the Mahra people in Somalia, the Paiku people in Brazil, or the Swahili people in Libya, or any of the other 6,674 people groups in the world that are still unreached, that I didn't just name. As further fuel for this question, I want to offer you this time words from Adoniram Judson himself. And this isn't just for us adults, but kids, This is for you too. Might one day you look back on October 23rd, 2016 and see that as a day that God began doing something amazing in your life. Hear are the words from Adoniram. It's a letter that he wrote to John Hasseltine, the father to Nancy, which... And Nancy was Adoniram's first wife who died on the mission field. He then married Sarah, whom we heard from earlier, who also died on the mission field. And here's what he said. This was his way of asking her father for her hand in marriage so that she could go with him across the sea on his missionary endeavor. He writes, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate in India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of Him who left His heavenly throne and died for her and for you for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God.
Can you consent to all this in the hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness brightened with the acclamation of praise which shall redound to her Savior from heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? Parents, how will you respond when you receive a letter like this one? about your child. As I mentioned earlier, the unreached, they're unreached for a reason. And while we have every confidence to assume, not to assume, but to know that God's Word will not return void, I think it's important here that we not blindly assume that we're the next John Patton or Adoniram Judson, Hudson Taylor, William Carey, whatever famous missionary you can name, and all the while forgetting the unbelievable trials that they suffered. Perhaps some of us in this room are the next John Williams and James Harris. In case you forgot who those men are, they're the ones who stepped off the boat onto the New Hebrides Islands in 1839 and were immediately clubbed to death and eaten. Maybe that's who God is calling someone here to be. Sixty years ago, on January 8, 1956, Aka Indians of Ecuador killed Jim Elliott, Nate Saints, Ed McCauley, Peter Fleming, and Roger Udarianus as they were trying to bring the gospel to the Aka tribe of 60 people. Four young wives lost husbands, and nine children lost their fathers. Elizabeth Elliot, widow to Jim, wrote that the world called it a nightmare of tragedy. Then she added, however, the world did not recognize the truth of the second clause in Jim's now famous credo. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now, I'm not saying that we ought to go looking for the death of a martyr, but what I'm saying is that we need to consider the weight of the task before us and be willing to lay down our lives that others might be brought into the kingdom of God. Here are the words that John Patton spoke concerning the deaths of John and James. Thus were the New Hebrides baptized with the blood of martyrs, and Christ thereby told the whole Christian world that He claimed these islands as His own. And given the statistics that we read earlier about the New Hebrides, it seems that Patton might have been right. The title of this sermon lastly now, Facing a Task Unfinished, actually comes from a song by the name, uh, a song of the same name on Keith and Kristen Getty's new album of the same name, Facing a Task Unfinished, and I want to share a couple of lines from the song with you in closing. We bear the torch that flaming fell from the hands of those who gave their lives proclaiming that Jesus died and rose. Ours is the same commission, the same glad message ours, fired by the same ambition. To Thee we yield our powers. 
We go to all the world with kingdom hope unfurled. No other name has power to save but Jesus Christ the Lord. With hearts full of faith and love to our great God and for the heathen nations of the world, let us commit ourselves together as a church to make every effort to play our part in the advancement of the gospel in the world. Most of us sending, some of us going, some of us perhaps dying. That the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah may come to their full fruition, those to whom it has not been proclaimed will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Let me pray. Father, you are the sovereign Lord of all the universe, and there is not a square inch on this planet that you do not reign over. There's not a people group as John saw in his vision of the throne room in Revelation 5. There's not a people group, a language, nation, or tribe from which you do not have some of your own who are ransomed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And yet it is our duty to go Anyone, you said, Lord, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they do that if they have not heard? How will someone hear the good news of Jesus Christ if someone doesn't preach? And how can someone preach to them if they are not sent? So God, I pray that you would strengthen us, that you would uphold us, that you would... Lift our eyes to the nations, to the harvest which is ripe and ready, but the laborers are few. Raise up missionaries, God, from our midst to go into the most difficult, dangerous places of the world even to proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it is in His name that I pray. Amen.